I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When Vince Sherry failed to show up for court on the morning of September 16, 1987, Pete Hallett agreed to drive by the house. But as his young associate Chuck Legere recalled, Pete insisted that Chuck accompany him. Chuck said that he was in the office and was getting ready to conduct a telephone deposition. And that Pete came in and said, hey, I need you to go with me. And he said, well, I've got this deposition to go. He said, no, no, drop what you're doing. You, you need to go with me. All the way out, driving from the law office to the Sherry house, Legere just said, Hallette was really just acting nervous. He said he just didn't seem to be himself. And when they got to the house, uh, he entered the house because the front door was unlocked and that he was only in the house for just a few seconds. And Pete walks out, startled look on his face saying, they're dead. And he said, well, who's dead? And he said, Vince and Margaret. Somebody's killed them. And Legere's rebuilding of the occurrence, he said he didn't have time to go to the back bedroom where Margaret was at. How would he know she was dead? I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Episode 7, Career Criminals. Less than a week after Bobby Joe Fabian's televised interview, the government had set up a grand jury as part of their investigation into his allegations. Chuck was one of the first witnesses to appear. Unlike Bobby Joe Fabian, Chuck was a polite, well-educated, law-abiding attorney who appeared to respect Pete Hallett. Prosecutor Kent McDaniel couldn't imagine why Chuck would have made the story up. Hallett vehemently denied that Chuck's story was true. But you can't, I mean, the fact is, he was not a 
publicity-seeking kind of guy. And that testimony before the grand jury was probably going to cost him his job if he hadn't already been fired. I just cannot imagine to this day why he would have done that unless it was what actually happened. And I tell you, the story he described was powerful. The grand jury just kind of gasped when they heard that. It, it was like that was the smoking gun. The lead investigators on the case were FBI Special Agent Keith Bell and Captain Randy Cook of the Harrison County Sheriff's Office. Their task was straightforward, if daunting, to corroborate Bobby Joe's story. My impression of Bobby Joe Fabian was that part of his story was true and part of it was false, which is very common when you're dealing with inmates. So uh, what we had to do is try to corroborate and determine what was fact and what was fiction. Shortly after taking over the case, Keith reached out to his FBI sources in Louisiana. And uh, an agent in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, contacted me and said he had an inmate named Robert Halal who had information about the Sherry murders, was also involved in the homosexual scam, and that he was uh, willing to talk to me if I'd come over. Keith and Randy interviewed Halal the next day at a hotel in St. Francisville, not far from Angola. Halal looks like your typical, <laughs> if you want to say Louisiana gangster. I mean, just dark skin, slick black, black hair, tattoos. He, he, he looked the part and tried to play the part. Halal, who was serving time for armed robbery, explained that he had earned around 50 grand working the scam with Kirksey at Angola. During that time, Halal said, he interacted regularly with LaRay Sharp, who he said managed the scam on the Gulf Coast. He added that Hallett must have been aware of the scam because Halal's wife had once picked up $6,000 from Hallett at his law firm. In May of 1987, Halal had made parole and moved back in with his wife in Leesville, Louisiana. Two months later, Halal said, Kirksey contacted him about a potential job down in Biloxi. And uh, Nick just said, I got a knockoff job. Are you interested? If so, here's what I want you to do. Go see my friend, Mr. Mike. And I want you to pass on $11,000 uh, to Mike. In August of 1987, a month before the Sherry homicides, Halal agreed to deliver the money and drove to Biloxi, where he said he met Mike Gillich at a steakhouse next door to the Golden Nugget Strip Club. Gillich asked Halal if he'd be willing to kill a judge. And Halal uh, supposedly told Gillich, there's no way I'm killing a judge because the FBI will look for me the rest of my life. According to Halal, Gillich tried to reassure him, saying, someone from Georgia will mail you a pistol with a silencer. But Halal was adamantly opposed. As a kind of consolation, Halal agreed to buy 10 pounds of marijuana, which Mike said he was trying to offload for Kirksey Nix. By this time, Randy and Keith had already interviewed a number of other inmates and been fed a lot of lies. But Halal's story felt different. If a guy's lying to you, you can you generally tell that he's lying? Just, I mean, it's just a police sense, you know? 
But Halal, when he starts telling this and bringing us names, everything begins to have the ring of truth to what he's saying. It's like, this happened. This really happened. I can see it. He, he was so descriptive that I can see it happening in my mind. Thus far, Mike Gillich had remained on the periphery of the investigation. Keith had determined early on that Gillich may have had a connection to the getaway car. Nearly two years later, Randy had discovered that Gillich had accompanied Pete to Angola on the same day Pete allegedly told Kirksey the money was missing. Now, Halal was putting Gillich at the center of the conspiracy. He brings Mike Gillich right into the middle of this thing. Mike Gillich is now a principal in this thing. He's out soliciting and offering money for the murder of the judge and his wife because Kirksey wants this judge killed. Halal, of course, was not exactly reliable. He was a career criminal with a history of cooperating with authorities in exchange for leniency. His parole had just been revoked, and he was looking for a break. But Randy and Keith managed to corroborate elements of Halal's story. They verified that he'd stayed at the Buena Vista Motel in East Biloxi around the time the supposed Gillich meeting took place. They even tracked down Halal's ex-wife, Pat, in Mobile. So Keith and I went to Mobile. We understood she worked at like a video store and uh, went over and met with her. In fact, it was not a video store that she worked at. It was a whorehouse that she worked at. And there's a girl in a negligee standing on the other side of the counter. Hey, can I help you? (laughs) But anyway, Pat. Uh, we talked to her on the back porch of this house, and she said, I'm going to tell you, said, Bob Halal is full of crap, and he'll lie to you, but he's telling you the truth on this. Halal's statement was the first major verifiable lead law enforcement had received since the Bobby Joe Fabian interview. You know, if you compare what he told us to what Bobby Fabian told us, Bobby Joe put us in the ballpark. Well, Bob Halal comes in here and puts us over the fence. So it's it's like, man, finally, something we can really run with. To protect his testimony, Randy and Keith immediately put Halal before the grand jury. The problem was, Halal had no idea who killed the Sherrys. Halal puts us into a murder conspiracy. And that's all he puts it into is a conspiracy. We, we, at this point, don't know who pulled the trigger. So we're still left without a trigger, man. Over the next year, Keith and Randy crisscrossed the Southeast, subpoenaing hundreds of witnesses, from convicted murderers to ordinary citizens. Keith drew on his extensive list of Dixie Mafia sources, amassed during the years he spent pursuing the corrupt former sheriff, Leroy Hobbs. Randy and I traveled extensively back and forth to Louisiana, not only to Angola. We had Dixie Mafia people in New Orleans and elsewhere that we talked to. So, you know, uh, informants calling constantly, but they wanted to do it off the record. So there were nighttime phone calls, federal prosecutors calling. It was crazy. 
Many of the witnesses Keith and Randy spoke to were too compromised or unreliable to withstand attacks from a skilled defense attorney. But they did locate a few witnesses whose stories strongly supported the theory that the scam had given rise to the murder conspiracy. Robert Wright was ID'd by Halal as being one that was uh, out there picking up money. And Robert Wright was brought in and interviewed and... uh, he, he confessed to picking up quite a bit of money and delivering it to uh, Mike Gillich and or LeRae. Robert Wright was an unemployed pool builder who'd become acquainted with Kirksey Nix in 1981 when Kirksey hired him from prison to repair the pool at the house he owned in Ocean Springs. Wright later became a sort of handyman for Kirksey, doing repairs and finding renters for the property. In early 1986, Kirksey hired Wright to start picking up wire transfers from Western Union outlets, then cashing the checks and delivering them to LeRae Sharp. At the time, LeRae was living at the Ocean Springs house with her two daughters and her mother, Jan Jones, and also working at the Hallett Sherry Law Firm. At some point, Wright explained, Kirksey and LeRae had a falling out. He gathered it was related to her access to a safe deposit box that Hallett kept for Kirksey at a local bank. After that, Wright said Kirksey instructed him to deliver the cashed wire transfers to Mike Gillich at the Golden Nugget. On one occasion, Wright admitted to delivering a satchel of $30,000 in cash to Gillich at the club. Wright acknowledged that he was no longer acting as a handyman, but Kirksey's requests grew increasingly suspicious. In the spring of 1986, Wright said Nix asked him to test fire a silencer-equipped 22 Ruger automatic a gun similar to the one that killed the Sherrys. Wright said he saw the gun inside LeRae's camera bag at the Ocean Springs house. And Robert Wright told me about seeing the silencer-equipped 22 in LeRae Sharp's camera bag, and we asked him to draw it out the best he could, which he did, and he did an excellent job of drawing out a Ruger 22 with a silencer on the barrel. And this was the first time that, other than just the law enforcement, that this 22 with a silencer had been mentioned. And here, this was the free world guy telling us about this pistol and silencer. So it really added credibility to what he told us. Wright said he refused to test fire the weapon, citing concerns that the gun was illegal. He believed the 22 was eventually delivered to Mike Gillich by LeRae Sharp or her mother Jan. Ransom would later tell Keith and Randy that he delivered the 22 to LeRae in Jackson, Mississippi, late one night in early 1986. This was months before the Sherry murders had supposedly been planned. I asked Keith, why had Ransom bothered delivering a silencer-equipped 22 to LeRae if there was no intended use for it? Keep in mind, these people killed a lot of people. It's our belief that John Ransom had probably killed in the neighborhood of 25 people uh, during his career. So having 22s and having silencers was very common for these people. A few months later, an agent at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation put Randy and Keith in touch with a 35-year-old inmate named William O'Neill Rhodes. Rhodes was claiming to have turned down an offer to be the getaway driver for the Sherry murders. 
When Randy and Keith met him at a federal prison in Atlanta, he unfolded a bizarre tale. It was obviously he was a lifetime criminal, uh, just in and out for various major crimes, not murder, but robberies and thefts and that sort of stuff. And uh, when we met with him, it was like, what, what do you do? What, what's your expertise in crime? And he said, I'm, I'm a driver. He said, I, I, I drive uh, for bank robbers. And he said, I'm not a good one because I keep getting caught. <laughs> Rhodes said he and John Ransom were close friends. So when Ransom approached him for help with a murder-for-hire gig, Rhodes agreed to meet. Over stakes at the Old Savannah Restaurant in Douglasville, Georgia, Ransom explained that he'd been hired to kill a judge in Biloxi, and he wanted Rhodes to be his driver or wheelman. When Rhodes demurred, Ransom reassured him that the target was a circuit court judge, not a federal judge. But Rhodes still wasn't interested. So Ransom proposed they take a trip to Biloxi. I want to introduce you to somebody, he said. And in March of 1987, Rhodes traveled to Biloxi, where he would meet up with John Ransom and a person he only knew as a guy by the name of Pete. And uh, he said Pete was driving a Mercedes-Benz, and that Pete, Pete was, uh, of course, the driver. Ransom was in the passenger seat, and Rhodes was in the back seat. And he said that uh, Pete was bragging about having the run of the town in Biloxi, that he could handle anything in Biloxi. As they drove through the streets of Biloxi, Ransom told Rhodes that his cut would be $30,000. When Rhodes voiced surprise at the high figure, Ransom mentioned he was being paid $100,000, $50,000 for the judge and $50,000 for his wife. And the driver, Pete, interjects and says, hey, the wife has to go too. So that, in Rhodes' mind, explained, well, that's why he's getting paid a little bit more than he normally would. Ransom's going to make a pretty good amount of money on this thing by killing two people. Rhodes worried about the fallout of killing a judge, but he needed the money, and he feared he'd be killed if he backed out. According to a transcript of Rhodes' statement, Pete assured him there would be no repercussions. As Rhodes stepped out of the car, he claimed that Pete handed him five $100 bills to cover his travel expenses. In the end, however, Rhodes was not available for the wheelman job. That's because, a week after returning to Atlanta, he was arrested for bank robbery and thrown in federal prison. Following those discussions, Bill Rhodes gets arrested by the FBI on unrelated bank robbery charges. And John Ransom became very concerned that Bill Rhodes would tell the FBI about the plan to kill the Sherrys in order to get out of the potential bank robbery charge. Rhodes assured us that Ransom did not go through with it and Rhodes did not drive for any hitman. When Ransom and Rhodes dropped out, Keith said, Mike Gillich was forced to renew his search for a hitman. Therefore, Mike Gillich primarily, and assisted by Glenn Cook, who's a former Biloxi police officer and manager of the Golden Nugget nightclub, uh, the two of them start interviewing 
other potential candidates to serve as a hitman on Judge Sherry. And uh, multiple interviews were done next door to the Golden Nugget at a restaurant called the Taurus Steakhouse. It was during this series of hitman interviews that Mike Gillich spoke to Robert Halal. But of course, Halal had turned the job down and he didn't know who'd accepted it. Neither did William Rhodes. The question became, if John Ransom didn't kill the Sherrys, who did? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast they said it couldn't be done they say it bordered on impossible when someone says i can't do something i usually agree with them (laughs) and now against all odds this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable they got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast you heard it here last in august of 1990 keith and randy met with a woman named kelly don nix they were surprised to learn that kelly was technically kirksey nix's wife as it happened Pete Hallett had married them over the phone in 1983. Kelly had been living in Kirksey's house in Ocean Springs and collecting a monthly allowance from Kirksey until she was charged with felony theft for her role in the extortion scam a month after the feds launched their investigation. When we began to focus in on Kelly Don Nix, we didn't know what to expect out of her. But uh, when we started talking to her, she was complete opposite of what we expected she was she was wide open she was she was ready to get away from uh, these people and it was kind of a, a pleasant surprise kelly turned out to be a gold mine she corroborated details of the statements provided by halal wright and rhodes she even claimed to have introduced halal to mike gillich during his visit to biloxi kelly also alluded to pete hallett's awareness of the scam When asked for details, she told them that, back in 1984, the FBI had questioned her about her role in the scam. Pete, who was then Kirksey's attorney, 
told her not to cooperate. Later that night, Kelly claimed, Pete called her at home with a message for Kirksey. Pete told her that she should tell Kirksey to leave those fags alone, which meant to us, of course, that he was totally aware of the homosexual scam being uh, directed out of Angola by Kirksey Nicks. Still, Kelly stopped short of saying Pete participated in or profited from the scam. And yet the heart of the interview lay in what Kelly described as the scam's underlying purpose. When she was asked what the purpose of this money was, she said, according to Kirksey, he was going to be able to buy his way out of prison by bribing the governor or somebody on the parole board. With that, Kelly seemed to confirm an essential, if often overlooked, element of Bobby Joe's story. That Kirksey intended to use the scam money to buy his way out of prison. According to Bobby, that was the reason he was so upset when all the money supposedly disappeared. As Kelly told investigators, in 1986, Kirksey had planned to send between $200,000 and $250,000 to someone in Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards' office to gain his release. This may sound far-fetched, but as Keith and Randy knew, it was indeed possible to bribe one's way out of state prison in Louisiana in the 1980s. Years later, Governor Edwards would be convicted of racketeering charges and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Prior to that, it was widely rumored that he accepted bribes. No one understood this better than inmates at Angola. Under Edward Edwards' administration, pardons were for sale. This is Jimmy Cox again, the former Angola inmate who worked on the scam with Bobby Joe Fabian and Kirksey Nix. If you had like a, just a regular simple burglary charge or a car theft charge, that cost you a couple grand. And then as the charges went up to scale, the money went up, you know, the price, like anything else. So you knew this as an inmate. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, everybody did. Jimmy said it was known that someone in Edwards' administration acted as his bag man. So you didn't send money to Edwards. It's like any other bribery scheme or pardons for sale. They happen everywhere, you know. But... Did you have a sense that Kirksey was raising money to buy a pardon? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I, I don't think he was trying to uh, raise money to better the yard and the landscape at Angola. Inmates weren't the only ones who knew the governor was susceptible to bribery. Prosecutor Kent McDaniel said it was an open secret. Yeah, as far as I know, that was... Uh... And the, the rates might have varied. Uh, you know, somebody might have been able to get out for less than $250,000. But th there was just a, a, a poorly kept secret that the governor was amenable to financial incentive to grant a pardon. And the pardon is an absolute right of the governor. Nobody has to check it. Nobody has to disagree with it. Randy and Keith felt confident about the witness testimony they'd gathered. They felt the members of the grand jury believed in them. They felt they had an indictable case. But Prosecutor Kent McDaniel did not agree. As he told us, several key witnesses, including Bobby Joe Fabian, Robert Halal, and William Rhodes, had adjusted their stories, presenting a potential nightmare in court. And they now faced a deadline. The grand jury was due to expire in just a few months. 
The federal investigation started around August of 1989. Uh, we worked on it very hard for two years. And by 1991, it's time to either indict or not indict. This grand jury was about to expire, so we had to either present it now or start all over with a new grand jury. If the grand jury expired, Keith and Randy would have to represent all the evidence and testimony to a new one. By then, witnesses might back out or recant their statements, risking two years' worth of grueling work. And so, prosecutors urged Keith and Randy to take another swing at the supposed trigger man. John Ransom. Days before Christmas in 1990, they had him transported from Georgia to Jackson, Mississippi to testify before the grand jury. Predictably, it went nowhere. As Ransom later told the press, he took the fifth on every question except his name. But when Keith and Randy visited him afterwards in a holding cell at the courthouse, they found Ransom in a vulnerable mood. We started talking to him and trying to get him get his cooperation, telling him, you know, how you're doing the life sentence in Georgia right now. Uh, you probably never get out of prison alone, but if you cooperated, there may be some light at the end of the tunnel. And you could feel that he was getting ready to confess to us. It was... In all my years in law enforcement, when you got a guy that doesn't want to talk, but all of a sudden he, he decides he's going to give you a confession, you can feel the air in the room change. It, it just, the whole atmosphere changes, the, the defendant's posture even changes, his breathing changes, and that's everything pointed to he was getting ready to tell us. We thought that he was slowly going to tell the truth about the case. It's probably 6, 6.30 at night, and the U.S. Marshals come in and say, hey, we need to take Ransom back to the jail. And I say, can't you give us a few more minutes? Uh, it's very important. And they said, well, we'll give you a little while longer. The train of thought has been broken a little bit, but. Anyway, we picked back up, and I'm guessing not five minutes later, the U.S. Marshals are back and saying, you know, he's our prisoner, we're, we're taking him. And with that, of course, we lost any hope of getting Ransom to cooperate. And um, it's, it was a real disappointment. The prosecution was crushed when they learned of Ransom's near confession, but they chose not to kill the case just yet. They knew they lacked enough evidence to convict on the murder conspiracy alone, but Keith and Randy had collected plenty of evidence about the scam. So prosecutors made the scam the focus of their indictment. If they could convict Kirksey and his co-conspirators of the scam, they figured, they might be able to flip one of them and eventually get a murder conviction. We had started this case in summer of 1989. Momentum had started slowly picking up, and it reached a crescendo in probably May of 1991 when we were ready to get indictments. When it came time to present the indictment to the grand jury, however, Kent McDaniel and the other prosecutors balked. Two of the federal prosecutors uh, 
pulled me into a private witness room along with Captain Randy Cook and said they did not think we had sufficient votes to return an indictment. And on top of that, they did not think we had sufficient evidence to convict them if we went to trial. Kent McDaniel explained the reasons for their hesitation. The point is, we're charging somebody with a federal felony, and we want to be certain that we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm not going to go into court with a case that is maybe 80% verified, but there's a big 20% hanging out there. And that's the way I felt about this case. There's so many open loopholes, so many ends to this case that could go wrong. And so that was kind of my position. I didn't want to do it. Still, Keith and Randy were outraged by the prosecution's reluctance to move forward. It hit us like a ton of bricks when they, when they said this. Of course, I just said, hey, let the grand jury vote on it, and if they don't vote to indict, I'll go home. But Keith, Keith was a lot more strong than that. He said both those USAs needed to be run out of town on a rail if they turned this case down. Keith made his feelings known to U.S. Attorney George Phillips. I presented my case to George Phillips, and George Phillips advised me that he was going to call Lynn Spazito, the daughter of the Sherrys in North Carolina, and let her decide uh, whether or not to present the indictment at that time. Lynn Spazito told him, if Keith Bell thinks it's ready to go, let's go for it. And George Phillips told her, If we go for it and fail, then the whole case may be dead forever. She said, go for it. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Federal prosecutors would not comment on the indictment, which included charges of conspiracy, wire fraud, and murder for hire. The indictment links a lucrative prison extortion scam to the Sherry murders and accuses Mike... To the prosecutor's surprise, the grand jury returned the indictment. It named four co-conspirators. Kirksey Nix, his now ex-girlfriend, Lorraine Sharp, the alleged trigger man, John Ransom, and Biloxi strip club owner, Mike Gillich. In May of 1991, all four were charged with orchestrating a prison scam in Louisiana and conspiring to kill Vince Sherry. Notably absent from the indictment was Pete Hallett. Three hours after it was unsealed, Pete called a press conference and declared himself vindicated. What I am here to tell you today is that the indictment issued in the grand jury investigating this case for the past two years did not name me because I was not in any way involved in any prison scam all the plot to murder my friends, Vince and Margaret Sherry. That is what I told you the day that you came to me with the insulting suggestion that I was somehow involved. Many people were shocked that Pete was not indicted. 
Two years earlier, Bobby Joe Fabian had appeared to put him at the center of the plot to murder the Sherrys. What happened? The reason uh, Mayor Hallett was not indicted initially was we just didn't have strong evidence of his involvement. We had the inference that he was involved by several people, but we felt here's a sitting mayor of Biloxi. He's been a judge. He's been a practicing attorney. You know, if you're going to go after somebody like that, you better have your ducks in a row. And just having the statements of one or two inmates, that's nowhere close enough to get somebody of Hallette's statue. In order to get Hallette, we would have to actually get a confession or a statement from one of his co-conspirators. And we didn't have that. And yet, Lynn Spazito, speaking to the press, said she expected more indictments to follow. When Lynn told me, you know, hey, we have indictments, and told me who was being indicted, my first reaction was, why isn't Pete being indicted? And I think the response was basically just, be patient, it's not done yet, the investigation is not closed. They need more evidence because they don't want to bring him to trial and not be able to convict him. Indeed, the indictment itself seemed to suggest the government was targeting additional people. It referred repeatedly to unnamed Confederates, as well as a third party who aided the defendants in the prison scam. Those who are chosen to sit on this jury can expect to hear an eye-opening and tangled story of criminal activity. Beginning with an extortion scam based at the Louisiana State Prison at Angola and reaching down to Biloxi to the Golden Nugget Strip Club and then over to the law office of Biloxi Mayor Pete Hallette and the murder judge. The trial began on September 30, 1991, four years and 16 days after the Sherrys were murdered. Reporters from across the country jostled for space inside the packed courtroom. On trial, Louisiana inmate Kirksey Nix, a Dixie Mafia leader who ran a scam that made thousands of dollars off homosexuals who responded to bogus personal ads in gay magazines. Dixie Mafia character and Biloxi strip club owner Mike Gillich, a friend of Kirksey Nix, a career criminal from Georgia, John Elbert Ransom, the man authorities have said was the hitman in the Sherry case, and finally, 36-year-old Sherry LeRae Sharp. She helped run the prison scam while she worked inside the Hallett and Sherry Law Office. The jury will hear lots of testimony from prison inmates, possibly including Bobby Fabian, whose allegations prompted the federal investigation. Also on witness list is Biloxi Mayor Pete Hallett, who has been implicated but not charged in this case. Heading into the trial, the prosecution held certain advantages. For one, it took place in Hattiesburg, an hour north of Biloxi, making it less likely Gulf Coast corruption would influence the jury. The presiding judge, Charles W. Pickering, had chosen to move it there. Now, did he mind that? No. Hattiesburg's about 15 miles from his house, so that's a whole lot better than driving to Biloxi. Plus, he figured he'd get shot at in Biloxi. But anyway, Pickering had just gone on the bench, and he had been a former prosecutor. And so we knew we were going to get, this government was going to get as good a shake as it could from his precedence over the trial. Still, the prosecution knew they had a tough hill to climb. Their case rested almost entirely on the testimony of criminals. 
prosecutors also feared that Hattiesburg jurors would lack sympathy for gay scam victims, some of whom agreed to testify. Judge Pickering knew the defense would try to exploit this, and he addressed it early on. I turned and I looked at the jury, and I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the sexual persuasion of these defendants have absolutely nothing to do with this trial. They're to be, they have the same rights, no more, no less, than anyone else. Counsel, proceed with your questions. But perhaps the prosecution's biggest advantage was Special Agent Keith Bell, who knew more about the case than anyone. No prosecutor likes to feel like they're being directed by an FBI agent on what to ask. I mean, they're the prosecutor. But this case, I'd put enough of my damn blood, sweat, and tears into it. I didn't want anything missed or left out by the prosecutors. Keith sat beside the prosecutors for the duration of the trial and often fed them information during witness testimony. Did Kent happen to say anything about that, the post-it notes? Yes, he did. <laughs> I loaded their ass up with them because while the witness was testifying, and I'd know something that, you know, the prosecutors aren't asking. So I'd write it on the little two-inch by two-inch notes, and I'd stick it on the prosecutor's desk right in front of me. So when they were through, normally a prosecutor asks the judge, give me a minute, you know, in case I've got other questions. And they'd turn around and the damn desk would be yellow, you know, from my notes. The defense attacked the weaknesses of the prosecution's case. Their main arguments were simple. One, Bobby Joe Fabian was a liar who testified because he wanted to get transferred out of Angola, something he achieved in 1989. And two, the government's key witnesses were career criminals who testified in exchange for immunity from prosecution. In the fourth week of the trial, Kirksey Nix took the stand dressed in a striped white button-down and bright red suspenders. He had spent the previous year on Angola's scam tier, which he described to us as more restrictive than death row. I was on the scam tier, and I was on there for a thousand days. There was no commissary, no books, no newspapers, no radios, no TV. Exactly. They did everything they could do to you without touching you. On the stand, Kirksey denied once again that he or any of his co-defendants had plotted to kill the Sherrys. Kirksey also claimed that Pete had zero knowledge of the scam. He echoed this in emails to me, saying, I will go to my grave believing that Pete Hallett is fully and absolutely innocent. I believe he loved Judge Sherry. The prosecution had labored to show that the murders occurred because Kirksey was angry someone had stolen the money he was saving to buy his way out of prison. But Kirksey argued that his money had never gone missing in the first place. So he had no reason to kill Vince Sherry or anyone else. I never had any missing money. Everybody believes this based on one thing, Bobby, Joe, Fabian. And it's a lie. It was a lie then. It's a lie now. Early in the trial, Pete Hallett was called as a witness by the defense. Under oath, he insisted that he had never met Bill Rhodes, the bank robber who claimed a man named Pete had driven him around Biloxi to discuss murdering Vince and Margaret. William Rhodes, never met him in my life. Okay? So he, he described me as wearing a lot of gold with my shirt open and clean shaven and gold rim glasses. Okay? At the trial, 
we presented pictures of me in that time frame. I had a shaggy mustache than yours. I didn't wear gold rim glasses, and I didn't wear gold like Mr. T around my, around my neck. Pete also denied ever having told Kirksey Nix to, quote, leave those fags alone, as Nix's ex-wife Kelly testified, suggesting he was aware of the scam but merely turned a blind eye. Under cross-examination, however, Pete did admit to signing 11 sworn affidavits that falsely claimed Loray Sharp was employed by him as a paralegal. Those affidavits had allowed Loray access to private attorney-client rooms at Angola, where, the prosecution argued, she'd assisted Kirksey with the scam. Pete told me he regretted the decision. I have to say that uh, that was uh, poor judgment on my part. But she did tell me that she was a paralegal. She did do some work for me. We didn't pay her for it. And she did tell me that she was working on this case. Okay. Actually, it was a stupid effort on my part to get him off my back. Loray Sharp, meanwhile, confessed to participating in the scam only until late 1985. That's when she discovered the extent of Kirksey's crimes, she said, and broke up with him. In an interview with me, she accused authorities of colluding with criminals to invent stories about her handling the murder weapon or routing phone calls to the alleged hitman, John Ransom. All of those other officers and all those other FBI people lied through their fucking teeth over and over and over again about things that had happened, how they happened, and why they happened. Lorray described her role in the operation as an unfortunate byproduct of her complicated relationship with Kirksey Nix, a man she had loved and wanted to help. I wasn't involved in mail fraud in 86, but yeah, I was still running errands for Kirksey sometimes. I was still gathering this. I was still gathering that. And yes, he would feather my nest with a few hundred dollars for going and doing this. But that doesn't mean I did any mail fraud. That doesn't mean I was involved in anything other than helping Kirksey with this stupid case that we, you know, I should have known at the time it was fruitless, but I'm not going to tell somebody, don't try to get yourself out of prison. It's not my life. And at that point, I just wanted to be away from him. I wanted to do the right thing by everybody. And, you know, a lot of it blew up in my face. Lorray also pointed out that the prosecution never called Bobby Joe Fabian as a witness, despite the fact that the feds had launched their investigation based on his initial statements. She added that the government had granted his request to be transferred to another prison. Bobby Fabian is at the bottom of the lie. You know, the big lie that we talk about now? Well, back then, the big lie was perpetrated by Bobby Fabian. Yet he never came into courtroom. We never heard a deposition from him. We never heard anything from Bobby Fabian. And he's the one that started this thing, this connection of the two things, because it got him out of Angola and it saved his life. Mike Gillich, for his part, denied any knowledge of the scam or the plot to kill the Sherrys. I've never put a contract out on anybody, he shouted, pounding the witness stand. I have never killed anybody. John Ransom declined to testify, and his attorney portrayed him as a harmless old amputee and family man. 
but that portrayal was cast in doubt in the midst of the trial. And uh, there was an incident where the lights went out in the courtroom. One of the attorneys had accidentally leaned up against the wall and turned the lights off. And uh, when they realized it and got the lights back on, John Ransom was under the table because he thought the hits were getting ready to take place. Yeah, now who, you know, who cares about the lights going out? <laughs> you know, but he, he knew what happened when the lights go out. Randy and Keith had concerns, but they believed their key witnesses, Robert Halal and William Rhodes, held up under pressure from the defense. Even though they were both under some pretty intense uh, cross-examination, they, they held up to it. They were truthful, they were believable, and the federal jury that heard the 1991 case, they believed the witnesses and they convicted everyone uh, we had indicted. The jury of eight women and four men deliberated for a day and a half before reaching a verdict. They convicted Kirksey Nix and Mike Gillich of plotting to kill Vince Sherry. John Ransom and Lorraine Sharp were convicted of lesser charges of conspiracy and fraud. Judge Charles Pickering later sentenced Mike Gillich and Kirksey Nix to 15 years in federal prison. Ransom was given 10 years, and Lorraine Sharp got one year and one week for helping Kirksey and Gillich operate the scam. After hearing all the evidence, it was my, my opinion that wherever Kirksey and Nix went, crime was there and he was involved in it, and he was uh, carrying along with him a conspiracy to commit all kinds of crimes, and they were all related. Uh, he was, uh, the overall purpose was to get him pardoned out of, and out of Angola, and he was doing whatever he could to do it, and these other crimes just sort of happened as, as being a part of that. After the verdicts were announced, Pete Hallett once again addressed the media. An innocent man doesn't have to worry, he said and I'm not worried. He added that he felt vindicated because the jury obviously didn't believe Bill Rhodes' testimony about Pete driving him around Biloxi. And yet, Kent McDaniel suggested otherwise. He had spoken to jurors after the trial, he said, and at least one of them said they would have convicted Pete if he were among the defendants. Of course, the convictions didn't solve the murders. Kirksey Nix, in a statement, pointed out as much, observing, Somewhere in the dark of night, the true killers of Vincent Margaret Sherry still lurk. Lynn Spazito told the press she was thrilled with the guilty verdicts, but she added, Until we have people convicted of capital murder and awaiting death sentences, it's not over. We weren't totally at the point where we could just relax because we knew that a key player in all this was still out there. Keith was confident they would eventually find out who killed the Sherrys. He saw the 1991 trial as a first step toward achieving that goal. We in the FBI knew in order to achieve the final solution to the murders, we were going to have to what we call flip a key participant. And we decided the key participant to try to flip was Mike Gillich. So uh, the 1991 trial we looked at as just a first step. We thought we'd convict Gillich if we could and any of his associates. 
The following year, the government succeeded in convicting Mike Gillich again, this time on marijuana trafficking charges. He was sentenced to an additional five years on top of the 15-year sentence he received in the Sherry trial. Gillich was 62 years old at the time and in poor health. He would likely die in prison. But as 1992 rolled into 1993, neither Gillich nor his co-defendants showed any signs of cracking. The months and what turned into years after the trial and the convictions in 1991 were definitely a feeling of limbo, frustration, not satisfied with the results. The Sherrys realized with growing dread that the murder of their parents might never be solved. But then, in the summer of 1993, the case took an unexpected turn. Gillich was charged with witness tampering and obstruction of justice while incarcerated at a federal prison in Pennsylvania. He pleaded not guilty, and a trial was set for that fall. On the day the trial was scheduled to begin, Keith Bell was in the courtroom when Mike Gillich's attorney approached him with an offer. We were in a witness room with Mike, just talking to him before we went out to pick the jury. And just kind of talking to Mike about, you know, how the trial was going to go. And then he just, he just kind of looked down at the table and said, tell him I can solve the Sherry murders. Tell him I can solve the Sherry murders. And we said, what? Thank you for listening to Gone South, a creation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of Cadence 13, along with Jed Lipinski, Tom Lipinski, and Ken Lee. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed and produced by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support by Ian Mont, Margot Gray, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Cherry. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Marketing, PR, sales and operations and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.